0: Our cancer journey. Hey, OCJ Tribe friends! On today's show, we talk to Joe Bullock, a rather traditional man with a remarkable story of transformation from average guy to caregiver to colon cancer survivor, and finally into the most unexpected and yet dedicated of cancer patient supporters. In this first episode of a two-part interview with Joe, we dive deep into the major life events and revelations that led him to passionately give back to those impacted by cancer check out this clip from the show.
1: I remember I was sitting on the couch looking out the window. My wife, my daughter, and my son were out in our backyard and they were playing with the dog in the backyard and they were running around and laughing and playing. And I looked out there, thought about each of them. And I thought I had this extremely competent woman in my life who financially could take care of herself. I have a daughter who is entering her second year in college, is doing very well. I have a son who's getting ready to go to high school and is enjoying his life. They would be okay without me. (laughs) They would be okay without me. The problem is, I won't be okay without them. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers and their
0: loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. This is Bruce Watkins, your host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the place where together we'll explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Welcome to the show today. This episode is the first in a two-part interview with a man named Joe Bullock. Joe is a pretty traditional guy who experienced a series of transformational changes during his cancer journey. If you knew him just a few years ago, you'd probably call him an average Joe. He was living in the south of the United States, but over just a few year period, he experienced becoming a caregiver in a challenging situation with his father. He and his wife decided that he would become a stay-at-home dad to help raise their children. And then Joe himself became diagnosed with cancer, and he and his family had to navigate through that situation. All of these experiences led to Joe becoming an unlikely advocate, but very passionate supporter of other men and children going through cancer. In this first episode, trust me, there's a lot of great takeaways in there for not only men, but for women for people who are parents, and for adult children that are supporting their aging parents going through cancer too. So please hang through this entire episode. There's a lot of great stuff in here. Then stay tuned for episode two, where we'll dive into Joe's giving back mission and talk about how he and his partner, Trevor Maxwell, formed the Man Up to Cancer Howling Place Facebook group. (laughs) This is where a thousand plus men and growing, calling themselves the Wolfpack, come together to support each other, share their stories, and sometimes talk about anything but cancer. Thank God. That's in episode two, but let's roll right now with episode one. I got so much out of this. I hope you do as well. Here's the interview with Joe. Joe Bullock, thanks for joining the Our Cancer Journey podcast today. I really appreciate you coming on because you are one special individual, and I'm happy that we could have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Bruce. I'm so happy to be here. Doing conversations like this brings hope to my survivorship and just being able to spread awareness with this type of cancer, especially among men. So, thank you so much for having me.
0: Your story is an amazing one because, as I said in the intro, you are a solid guy. You are a good person, Joe, but you're like every man. Right. You're a father, you're a dedicated husband, you work, you do good works with your work. You're not some blazing, trailblazing advocate and somehow. Your life just by happenstance went into a direction, and it's an amazing story, Joe. And mm-hmm. uh, let's start by talking about who you were before cancer. Who was Joe Bullock, the guy that I would have met you know four or five years ago?
1: Uh, you basically said it. I was just a common man. I, I was just living my life. I was a father of two children. my My wife is an r n at Duke Medical Center. We were just living our life. There was nothing really special about our lives. We were just like you say, very common family. Our daughter was her freshman in college. Our son was getting ready to be a freshman at high school at the time. And we were kind of planning on looking forward to being empty nesters. We were looking forward to an upcoming vacation that we'd been planning. We, like any family, we were just thinking about growing old together. The idea of being a family dealing with someone with a medical crisis wasn't Even the idea, my kids never even thought about one of their parents could possibly die. That wasn't even in their spectrum of ideas. So within a day or two, we all had to face that idea. And for a family, that was tough. That was tough to sit down with your kids and say, this is what's happening to dad. Yeah. So we were just a normal family, just loving life, loving each other. And then we got hit with this crap storm of cancer, (laughs) I guess you would call it. It wasn't totally unexpected because I I knew of some symptoms. We can talk about it later, but I didn't really expect to hear that day that I had stage three colon cancer.
0: Joe, tell us a little bit about what you did for a living.
1: Um, Well, beginnings. I mean, I have a degree in hotel restaurant management. It's nothing astounding, you know, Um, but I did that for about 10 years. And after I got married and my wife and I had children, I um decided to become a stay-at-home dad. My wife's an RN at Duke and her hours were crazy. And so we decided for us to have kind of a normal family life, one of us kind of needed to take the lead role in our daily lives. And so I came home and then took a part-time teaching job at a preschool because I was dropping my kids off and they needed volunteers. One of the, the directors said, hey, why don't you come teach a class if you're not doing anything at home right now? So I started doing that. As my kids finished and moved on, I stayed on and taught. So that's what my life was like before cancer.
0: So, Joe, that's amazing. Here you are, a gentleman in the South, a regular dude. Right. And a lot of people would say that you are the new enlightened man. I mean, you looked at your female partner and you said, hey, I'm going to be the one to stay home with the kids. Mm -hmm. This makes more sense for us. It's good for the kids. It's good for you. It's good for me. Yeah. What were the decisions in that? How did you feel about that? I mean, clearly you're a grounded guy, so you don't seem like a person that's dealing with a lot of baggage that would prevent something like that.
1: I mean, at the time, it just made economical sense because I realized that most of my salary was going to childcare and that just didn't make any sense. You know, why put my kids through that at a young age? I mean, they did go on to do like a preschool program, so they did get some education, but they didn't sit in a daycare for 12 hours if they didn't need to every day. That was our perspective.
0: So I'm just curious because I think there's a connection between you feeling comfortable to be the caregiver to children Mm -hmm. and you eventually overcoming the barrier that a lot of people have and you becoming a very giving and support providing person for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are going through with cancer. How was that when you first became a kid raiser? (laughs) What was that like?
1: Well, I... I think you're right. I mean, to be, being, being a teacher, especially, um, I did have direct communication with my parents, so I was used to talking to people um, and e- expressing you know all sorts of concerns for their children and what their daily lives were like. And that definitely has moved over into cancer land in a sense of my communications with survivors and, and the lives they're going through and personal lives of their families and, and the understanding. And I would hear similar things with my parents you know, and what they were going through with their lives or their children. So it, it, there is definitely a correlation of those two. And then also, as we did talk about me being a caregiver for my parents, kind of ties into all this too. Right. Um, To have, you know, to have been a caregiver before cancer, I understood the perspective of a caregiver.
0: Okay. So, Joe, how long were you in this pre-K position where you got this job to fill in and it became your vocation, right?
1: It did. I, I taught for about 20 years. I taught for 20 years as a a pre-K teacher. That must have
0: been very fulfilling.
1: It was. It was. I'm a very, um, I'm kind of an artistic person. So it kind of, and creative. So it sort of led into that idea. My wife is also, so she would help me with things. It kind of got her mind off of nursing and she would help me with my projects and stuff. So it was definitely something we collaborated on together. And and I think our base of our marriage has been communication because we communicated about our our jobs, about our decision for me to be a stay home dad we've communicated about life in general. But then when I was facing cancer, we had that base of communication. And I think that is a lot of the struggle with relationships within the cancer space, because you have to make a lot of decisions about cancer. And if you're a partner and you aren't communicating, that's a whole different struggle. That's a whole different struggle because you're talking about relationships, finances, I mean, there's so much there and just in that component when it comes to cancer.
0: Joe, I don't want to ask anything too personal, but if you were giving advice to somebody, let's talk from the guy perspective. I've got a number of people that are going to come on and talk from the female perspective, but Mm -hmm. you're a guy, you're married, or you've got a long-term girlfriend. You're very dedicated to each other. You're going through this. Clearly, you and your wife partner had some good things going when it came to communication. By the time your cancer came around. But what kind of barriers or things do you think you ran into that you could say, hey, guys, this is a typical thing that happened or or, I experienced something like this and this is how we kind of got around it. Do you have any advice for people?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I remember the day I was diagnosed and I remember after the colonoscopy, my wife was in the waiting room waiting for me to come back. And when they brought me in, I couldn't even look at her in the eye. Because I knew what I was bringing to the table, to our marriage.
0: Really? What must that have been like?
1: I think I mentioned this earlier, but I kind of knew some symptoms were going on. Like I knew there was a reason there was blood in my stool. I knew there was a reason I was having abdominal cramping. I knew there was a reason that I was having some fatigue. I knew something was up and I suspected it was cancer. And I didn't want to put our family through that. But at that point, when I got the diagnosis, I realized I screwed up.
0: Did you tell your wife about the blood in the stool and did you tell her about your concern? And I'm, I'm going to use the word fear, but you know, obviously we could say mm-hmm. anxiety or whatever. Did you tell her in advance what was going on or how soon did she realize that cancer was in the picture and that you had these feelings about cancer being in the picture?
1: That's probably something we didn't talk about early on. I think we both realized that there was a possibility that it could be cancer. I just don't think we wanted to hear it or face it. You know, her being an RN, in fact, an RN at my cancer center, (laughs) which puts a whole nother light on this. I think we both realized, you know, when I told her I'm seeing blood in my stool, she's like, you need to go to your doctor like tomorrow.
0: Having an RN as your Mm living, loving person in life, I guess (laughs) is a little bit of a blessing and a curse, right? Because she just cuts right to the chase as an RN, right? Right.
1: Exactly. And that was the toughest. That was probably the hardest thing about getting diagnosed was the realization is that um, she was no longer going to be just a,
0: you know, it was. It's okay, Joe. She was
1: no, longer going to be a loving mother. I'm sorry. I, I know she was no longer going to be a loving mother. She was no longer going to be um, my wife. But she was going to become a caregiver to a cancer patient. And she as a nurse, when she got to my door, could leave her life as a nurse at the door. Now she's walking into a cancer patient. And I hated that. It's, it's a reality as you get older. I know as couples get older, we're faced with all sorts of diagnosis, medical traumas. That's the reality of life. You do get married for better or worse. But I never wanted to have to see the worst, and that's that's what we were facing. That's and that's and that's why when I walked into that room that day, I couldn't look at her in the eye because I was taking something from her, and that that just that just kind of tore me up inside. That tore me up inside.
0: Hey, tribe friends, it is Bruce, and I'm popping into the show for just a minute to ask you a personal favor. When it comes to podcast subscriber numbers, ratings and positive comments the show receives really helps people to discover the show and its content. Our mission is to try to get out important information to help empower people and to help people enhance the quality of their lives. If you like what we're doing here at the Our Cancer Journey podcast, or you feel it may be beneficial for others, if you'd be kind enough to subscribe, give us a favorable rating, and a couple of nice comments too. We'd be greatly appreciative, and we could be helping other people discover our program. Thanks a lot for listening. Let's get back to the show. It sounds to me that the diagnosis that you took on with yourself and the understanding of facing your mortality right then and right there was actually... Mm -hmm less of a concern than the impact it was going to be on your wife
1: right right and and we can talk more about this but the days following my diagnosis i remember i was sitting on the couch looking out the window my wife my daughter and my my son were out in our backyard we had just adopted a, a dog and they were um playing with the dog in the backyard and they were running around and laughing and playing and I looked out there and thought about each of them, and I thought I have this extremely competent woman in my life who financially could take care of herself. She has a great job. I have a daughter who is entering her second year in college, is doing very well. I have a son who's getting ready to go to high school and is enjoying his life. They would be okay
0: without me. Wow. Joe. You're, you, you did that thing that people looked at their family from like this observant thing from way back. Oh, my God, Joe.
1: Right. You know, they would be okay without me. The problem is I won't be okay without them.
0: Bam. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Joe, when you were sitting there with that feeling, what did you do with it? Did you use it to empower you or did you have to get through that a little bit?
1: I, I used it. You said it exactly. I used it to empower me. I realized that no longer did I have cancer, but we had cancer and I had to fight for them. No longer was it about me anymore. It was about us and it was about my kids seeing me strong and not weak. It was okay to be weak. I mean, they saw all those moments. They saw all those moments. In fact, my son, I don't think it really hit him till maybe six months after I was diagnosed that cancer had weakened me so much. I fell in the kitchen one day and it just was like a light went off. And he was like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you hurt? And like, it was just like, all of a sudden he realized my dad is no longer, <laughs> you know, cause he was only um, 11 at the time. So it was really hard to process. And he had to face that idea that, what cancer had done to me, or what it could do to us. We tried to remain as positive as possible with the kids. You know, we did put off really telling them everything for about a month. We wanted to make sure we knew exactly what was going on with my body. Even my daughter, when she went back to college, it wasn't even a week that went by, and one of her sweetmates said, "Oh, your dad has cancer. He'll be dead in a year." Whoa! <laughs> the sweetmate went on to tell, "Oh, everybody I know dies from cancer, so your dad's going to die." And our daughter called home that night and said, you said dad wasn't going to die. You said everything was fine. And so we had to like already had to go through reassuring her once again that my diagnosis was, was very positive. So it was just having to reassure them over and over again that I was going to be okay. It was tough.
0: That's something that's really important. Having talked to a number of parents that have cancer, how to talk to their kids, when to talk to their kids, mm-hmm. they seem to get hyper-focused on the initial conversation. Like, how am I going to break it to them? Mm -hmm. And what you just said, I think is very enlightening. And I want to highlight it here that you don't just communicate to your children and tell them about cancer once. Yes, You are continuously communicating cancer to them because you are changing and they are changing in their reality. Mm -hmm. They're coming more aware. They're starting to feel their feelings at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. They're grappling with new things. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the evolution of those conversations? You mentioned the one with your son, how he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it dawned on him. How did your communications with your children change over time?
1: Well, my kids have a varied range in age. They're about six years apart. So my son was 11 at the time of my diagnosis. My daughter was um, 17 at the time of my diagnosis. My daughter had already Googled everything. The minute I said I had colorectal cancer, she was already on Google. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was already researching everything. She knew more than we did. That's your typical teenager. It.
0: <laughs> she, she got <laughs> out in front of us again. <laughs> She's already,
1: she already out in front of us. She knew all the stages. She knew everything. Oh, God. Um, My son was more, I don't say she wasn't trusting, but he was a little more trusting in a sense that he was kind of like, are you okay? And I would just say, yeah, I'm good. I'm doing good right now. And he accepted that. He really didn't question a whole lot. I mean, we would tell him if he did ask me a question, I would tell him, this is what the doctor said. I am stage three. My prognosis looks good. Dad is okay. And he would kind of accept that and went on with his life or whatever video game he was into, or it didn't shatter his life as much until he saw me hurt. Until that day, I talked about earlier where he saw me fall in the kitchen. And I think it just like a light bulb went out. This is my dad and he's hurt. I'd never had surgery or been to the hospital. So for him, that was kind of shattering at that moment. For our daughter, like I said, she had already researched everything. So there was more reassuring her that I'm okay. I would have to kind of explore things a little more with her, share with her a little more what the doctors were telling me. Because she needed to hear that. I would say, don't look at Google. This is what my medical doctor is telling me. She knows what the CEA term is. You know, that she knows the markers. She'll ask me about the marker. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it <laughs> so could, be, could be genetic that you got it from your wife. You know? Right, right. So it's all like,
1: you know, yeah, she's kind of like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, we've had to kind of explore it at two different angles with them.
0: Just one last thing on the thing communicating to your kids, because obviously things worked out well for you. <laughs> so- What would you recommend for folks out there on how to do the communication from a point of checking in? Were you more proactive about keeping an eye on the kids and observing their behaviors? Or did you just kind of wait for them to come to you? Were you comfortable and did you communicate with them in a way where you let them know they were welcome and they felt welcome and safe to come to you? How did that look?
1: I mean, my wife and I just sat down with them probably. I don't think we initially told them. I think we waited, honestly, till, because we didn't know until my surgery if there was lymph node involvement. And that really showed you the stages of colorectal cancer. So they knew I was having surgery. They knew the tumor was being removed, but we really hadn't said, Dad has cancer yet. It wasn't until after surgery that I found out that 40 lymph nodes were removed. Three of those lymph nodes were, were cancerous. So we knew I was stage three. We also knew that it hadn't spread to my other organs. So we knew it had not metastasized to stage four. At That point, we were able to sit down with the kids and say, basically, this is it. This is what dad's going through. Everything's positive. He's going to do chemo. Hopefully he'll be what's called no evidence of disease after he's done with chemo. And this is where we're at. My son, I was like, you know, if you have any more questions, check in with dad. And, and sometimes we'd go off, I'd take him to McDonald's or we'll go to the video game store and we'll just ride in the car. And I'm like, are you okay? And about, about what's going on with dad? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. And I would kind of let that go. And I wouldn't push him. I, I trusted him enough to know that if he had more questions, he would ask me.
0: I'm surprised you weren't asking your daughter questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I probably could.
0: (laughs) Exactly. uh, That's when she takes the medical diagnosis like they do with our cell phones. You know, give me uh, that.
1: (laughs) Well, the funny thing is she did. She did ask me. She graduates this year from college. And
0: congratulations. Thank
1: you. And uh, but she's already asking me. So, Dad, when do I need to get my colonoscopy? like, when do I need to think about doing that? So shes it's already in her mind that she realizes that this is this is a part of our life and this is going to be a part of her life that she'll need to get screened early. So she's already seeing that. shes and I'm glad that she has that takeaway, that she's already concerned about her own physical health as she gets older.
0: Joe, I think you know, because you've heard the program, you know that we're not a medical information-based show. We're about life, right? Right, right, exactly. But I do want to ask one medical question here, and that's Because I I found out not too long ago that we have a lot of colorectal cancer listeners in our audience, but they're obviously looking for the life component and all that stuff. But with regards to that, is colorectal cancer the kind of cancer that is a high genetic probability to be handed down, or is it more of a happenstance of environment and mutation per individual?
1: Well, it's basically how that was the question I asked. I remember asking my college that question. And he was basically, there are two ways you can get colon cancer. You can either get it environmentally, which was in my case, because they did all the genetic studies of my tumor and my blood work, and I showed no active genetic mutations. So for me, it was more environmental. You know, it was 50 years of eating fast food, 50 years of eating processed meats. It was 50 years of all those things that I was putting in my body, um, which I did carry a amount of guilt around for a while. But there is the other side of it where there is the genetic mutations that are causing the colorectal cancer. In fact, for children who are getting colorectal cancer, it is a direct to the genetic mutation that is causing the colorectal cancer. Yeah, so, that's kind
0: of that's kind of typical. They haven't had enough Right yeah.
1: right. They haven't had enough life, <laughs> you know, um they haven't had enough hot dogs to, you
0: know. <laughs> they haven't see, seen uh, enough commercials right. with a hot dog that's actually a truck driving around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, 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 right. So, you know, um So there's so many components. And there's also Lent syndrome, which is another component, which deals with the genetic component of colorectal cancer.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. Because when your daughter said, do I need to get checked? I know of people that said their kids have this fear now. Mm -hmm. It's like even though you try to explain, hey, this is just something that happened to me. Even people that have been exposed to asbestos. Right. And clearly the kid hasn't been exposed to asbestos, but here they are, Mm -hmm. and the kid is just frightened. Am I going to get it? Right,
1: right.
0: So it doesn't sound like that's the case, but at least they're getting early screened and understanding the need for early detections there because you've been a poster child for what that can do if you actually follow through.
1: Right. And there are other, I mean, colonoscopy is like the the major way to screen, but if you're younger, there are other alternatives. There is the fit test. There is a color guard that, which are basically stool sampling tests, which are very easy. You send it in they send you a letter saying you, these percentages are what cancer you might have in your body. And I found it was funny. I was at a, a family reunion a year after I was diagnosed and I had gone through chemotherapy. And my cousin walked up and goes, oh, I did the color guard test about three years ago. And our family was 92% genetic component marker
0: for colon cancer. This is a direct cousin.
1: Yeah, this is a direct bloodline cousin. And she's telling me that our family, we could get colorectal cancer based on a color guard test that she did. And that's the importance of talking about screening within families and, and having that open conversation. Because you never know what's there. You never know your family history with cancer unless you talk to your family about it. And that's that's I think that's what um the whole push for screening is, is getting people to realize they need to get screened and they need to have these conversations within their families.
0: Joe, so here you are, you're living your life, you're a pre-K teacher, things are going good, wife's career is going great, kids are doing well, you're a standard, solid stand-up guy a series of events happened that pretty much transformed your life Mm -hmm. it wasn't just you getting cancer but also family events that happened around you (laughs) what was the first of those life-altering events that happened to you
1: um so my dad was diagnosed it's probably about 10 years ago over 10 years ago now 15 years ago he was diagnosed with um early onset prostate cancer but he actually refused treatment And had refused treatment over the years. He's just this type of guy that he didn't trust doctors. He barely ever went to the doctor unless he was kind of forced to go. So probably two years prior to my diagnosis, things got really bad. Because he had refused treatment, obviously there was tumors involved and they were causing um, him to have back pain. They were causing um, him to have cramping. So he ended up bedridden for quite a while.
0: So you mentioned he was diagnosed, I mean, a decade or more before things really started to advance, which is Mm -hmm. common in some prostate cancers. They can just cook in there for a long, long, long Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Did you know when he got diagnosed? Did you guys have any conversations about that?
1: Well, it's interesting because it was right around the time we had built our home. And I actually built our home across the street from my parents. I was looking for a new doctor. What, 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 just what, a what, what, is this like
0: everybody loves Raymond or something?
1: It <laughs> is so everybody loves Raymond. We had to have that conversation. Dad, you just cannot walk in the house. You have to ring the doorbell. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yes, we had all those conversations. Right, right. We had all those conversations. It, yes, yes. That is very much what my life was like for a while.
0: Okay, okay. So yeah, so yeah, anyway, yeah. so so we know. When when was this house building give us that anchor in time?
1: So after we built our house, I hadn't got a physical in a while. And we had just had, um, I think our son was just born. And my wife was like, hey, I think you need to get a physical. I'd been having some back pain or something. I found a doctor near the house at a clinic. So I went for the appointment and the doctor came in the room and goes, are you Don Bullock's son? And I was like, yeah, that's my dad. And he goes, well, I'm looking at your family history. I'm looking at your chart and I'm noticing you don't have prostate cancer on here. And I'm like, I don't have a history of prostate cancer in my family. He was like, you might want to check that. Basically, tell me you might want to ask your dad about that. <laughs> <It's so amazing>. <laughs> <laughs> saying, you know, your dad could have cancer. You know. <laughs>
0: you know, there's an outside possibility that maybe your father, your father was diagnosed cancer. with cancer. Um, so this is like, how do I get around HIPAA in every way possible? And, huh? <laughs> right. And so he's
1: like that day, he's like, you know, you could leave here today and you may not have prostate cancer. But I would suggest, and I was think I was like 37 at the time, and he was like, I would suggest let's do a DRE, let's get your PSA checked, let's just make sure that you're not carrying this gene or, or that you're not early diagnosed as well. Because he at that point had seen typically young men coming in and being diagnosed with prostate cancer at much younger ages.
0: I, I just have to stop right here, Joe, and say, and you don't have to agree or disagree but I'm just going to make a statement. So sorry if I'm going off here mm-hmm. <laughs> with all the best intentions, we do all kinds of things. And God knows that personal health information is super, super, super important. Right. But if that guy had not told you that information and I had a similar thing that I won't go too into, but my mother had passed away and I was in a terrible physical state after my cancer with inexplicable issues. Mm-hmm. I actually called a doctor that treated her mm-hmm. and the doctor, and I'm not going to say who the doctor was because she had many doctors. I said, she never talked to me about these topics right. and there are issues and the doctors have no idea what's going on. They're operating completely blind. And the guy just said, Mm-hmm. Uh he said a professional word in the medical community I think it starts with the letter F. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he goes I don't care about laws. You need to know this because it's unfortunate that sometimes people from different generations or cultures don't discuss stuff. Right. But without this kind of information it may cost you your life. Right. And it, he goes I know it could harm my professional life. Mm-hmm. In this case, she passed away and there was nobody to give permission to give her medical stuff to. Right. And I wasn't on her HIPAA thing at the time. It's just crazy. So right. thank God for that doctor that talked to you and the doctor that talked to me and the people that understand when to share that critical information.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was a time, and this is nineteen ninety nineteen ninety seven, 1997. So it was a different time period. You know, as far as HIPAA and all those things, maybe the conversations could be a little more open today. Maybe that doctor would have had that conversation with me. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, th- well, just thank God he did.
1: Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And
0: that just tells us if we've got parents that are close, we probably should go to them and really ask them more questions if for nothing else to save us and our kids potentially a lot of heartache. Right, right. So there you are. What happened after that? You just found out your dad has cancer.
1: Yes, I I did try to talk to him about it. He didn't want to talk about it. He refused to talk about it. He was like, no, I'm fine. I'm not dealing with this. He just went on with his life. I had to respect that. That's his health decision. So we really didn't talk very much about it until he got really sick. And that was probably, you know, 10 or 12 years later.
0: Did you at least know that it was a low-grade, slow-moving cancer? Mm
1: -hmm. I knew it was low-grade because the doctor said he was, the doctor's statement was that he is showing early signs of prostate cancer. Hmm.
0: Okay. So he was in serious condition for almost two years and he was deteriorating and yeah. you were interacting with him during this time.
1: Yeah, I was, I was one of his caregivers. Um, he and I had had a really rough relationship and didn't agree on him very much over the years. And my sister basically pleaded with me, I, I just need help with dad. I need you to... Basically, she said, I, I need you to man up and I need you to help dad.
0: So she was the primary. She, my
1: sister was the primary, Okay, but I think it was just, it was too much. It was too much because my mom had her health issues. So she was basically dealing with being caregiver for really two patients at the time. And it was tough for her. Uh, My sister's also a nurse. (laughs) So that's a whole nother perspective. Well, you're in the right place at the
0: right time here, aren't you, Jeff? (laughs) I have have nurses on both sides of me. Okay. But you weren't like not caring for your dad because of any issue with you. You mentioned that you had a relationship kind of little wiggle there with your dad. Did did your dad prefer your sister? Because sometimes patients. He did. Okay. Tell me about that.
1: He did. He did prefer her. Um, she was my younger sister. She actually lived with them. She was single. And after college, she pretty much stayed there and lived there and lived with them because their, their health issues started happening pretty early on. And so she made the decision just to stay in the house with them.
0: Well, and she was a nurse too. And She was a nurse, but
1: it became increasingly obvious that that was wearing on her very much and she needed support. And I had to kind of put all my feelings aside and just, and be there for him. And ultimately, I'm glad I did. It was a blessing, but to make that decision was tough. It was really hard for me at the time.
0: You mentioned something that somebody in the hospital, a doctor or a chaplain spoke to you when you were in that point of trying to resolve that conflict within yourself. Can you tell us that story?
1: It was two weeks prior to my dad dying, and we knew that he wasn't going to be leaving the hospital. We knew that, and he was grappling with the idea of either going to a hospice center or going home. And I was trying to convince him to go to a local hospice center because I'd been there, my, my, my sister and I had been there, and we knew the care he would get there. It was going to be a better quality of life for him. It would also support my sister because she was having to care for my mom as well. And when I was speaking with the doctor, the doctor walked in the room and I really didn't have like power of attorney over my dad. I didn't have any documentation that said that I would make any legal decisions for him. And at the time, the doctor looked at my dad and my dad was just like, he was just tired. He was tired of talking to doctors. The doctor looked at my dad and he said, okay, do you give your son permission to make your health decisions at this point. Do you want me just to talk directly to your son? And my dad looked at the doctor and said, yes, I want him to be the one.
0: Wow, Joe. What was that like, that moment?
1: I think based on our relationship, I, um, I didn't know that we would ever be at that point. I didn't know that he would put that much trust in me because what our relationship had been like. And I think he was just tired and drained and it took him a lot to just say, For him, it was saying, I need your help. I need you to take over. I need you to take this off of me. Wow. When my dad gave me permission to talk to the doctors, I went out in the hallway with the doctors and I happened to see the chaplain and I grabbed him and I said, can you just go sit with my dad while I talk to the doctors? And he's like, sure. So they had a conversation while I was talking to the doctors. And that's when the doctors told me, your dad has been living with this tumor for we don't know how long. And he's been taking pain meds like it's candy, like over the counter and had basically eaten his organs up. And there's nothing at this point we can do. His organs aren't going to survive a surgery.
0: You have an opportunity to have surgery earlier?
1: He did. He did. Actually, it probably been about five years prior that they had suggested that to him.
0: And what did they tell you about that?
1: He refused. The doctor said, I have talked to your dad several times about having the surgery. He did allow a CT scan. And so that's why they knew there was something there they needed to explore.
0: Hold on. Let me get this straight. Are you telling me that Days before your father passed away with this difficult relationship and you coming to terms with it and stepping up, he granted you the opportunity to make calls for him. And you said, okay, dad, I'm going to go talk to the doctors. And it's then, just days before he passed away, that you found out he passed up a surgery that he could have had years before?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I did. That goes back to his personal choice, his personal decision. I mean, that's what he decided. I think every patient has that right. It might not be what I thought was the best decision, but he obviously chose that decision. And. The doctors told me that he had been abusing over-the-counter medicine and it had ruined his organs. There was no way to, to do the surgery at this point. There was no way to save him. Their suggestion was either you take him home and give him comfort care or you go to hospice. And, and I asked them, what do you think? And they're like, well, we can't tell you, but his best quality of life will be at the hospice center. So we kind of left it at that at that point. I walked into the room, the chaplain and he was telling me about the conversation that I had with my dad. And so he walked me out of the room and he, he said to me, he said, um, I realize that your relationship is strained. I can tell that you're really trying here. And I've noticed that because he has come in the room a couple of times when I'm there. And he's like, I, I think if you just kind of step back and put aside whatever you're feeling, whatever your relationship is like, and you take this moment, this time and give your dad the peace that he needs, you will be blessed down the road. I, I don't know what he meant by that. Like at this point, I didn't know anything about cancer diagnosis. I didn't know anything in my future. But if you grant this to your dad, then you're helping him gain the peace that I think he's wanting through their conversations. He just wants to know that, that his family is going to be okay, that he's forgiven for anything that any hurt or any damage he had caused over the years. So I think that's what your dad is looking for right now. And I think you're the one that can give him that. So for me, I had to put aside a lot of my feelings and emotions and hurt that I was feeling because of our relationship to give him what he needed at that point. And that was helping him die with peace. And at that point, I knew that was my purpose in that moment.
0: The chaplain was really seeing a future vision there because Mm -hmm. that helping him and stepping beyond yourself and your own limitations. In that case, it was your relationship. But for a lot of us, it's just the fear of being engaged with other people, Mm -hmm. taking on too much of an emotional burden. Mm -hmm. You got beyond that for you. And that turned into a blessing that's just (laughs) paid forward and done so much for people and so good. That was the beginning.
1: Right. Right. I think that is the reality of a caregiver. I think you do have to put a lot of your feelings, your emotions aside, because you're feeling all these things that the patient's feeling. And I think you have to kind of put those things aside to be there for the patient. And I think in the moment, there was so much adrenaline that I don't think the days going forward, I really thought about it. I just knew what I had to do. And it wasn't until he died. that (laughs) You know, I remember the day he died in I, had, I was at work, and I remember I got the phone call, and they called me, and they said, you know, Mr. Bullock, we wanted to let you know your dad has passed. Just get here as soon as you can. And I got, I got to the hospice center. I walked in the door, and I basically fell. I think I actually passed out for a moment because I think it, everything had hit me that he had passed. I sat in the chair, the nurses came over, they gave me a minute, they said, take as long as you need. After that, I just um, I went to his room and I just I spent time with him, waited for other family members to get there, but I felt comforted that I I gave him what he needed from me, and that was for him to pass in peace.
0: Wow, that's a very powerful story. You know, Mm -hmm. isn't it true that so many of us when we're going through something like this, that when we're in the midst of it, Something automatic happens. I don't know if it's a survival thing, but we get hyper focused, we Mm -hmm. get the job done, we take it over the goal line or whatever sports analogy you want to use. And then when a moment, a day, a month, maybe a year later, Mm -hmm. when it's behind us is when it hits us. You know, the Mm -hmm. gravity of it. Right. How are you doing? Sorry. I was
1: tough. That was tough. You're doing great, Joe.
0: Thank you. Well, folks, we're going to end this episode, which is part one of a two part series with Joe Bullock, right here. I really appreciate his raw honesty. It really set the stage for what he went through, but also it helps give us context for what he was about to do. You see, Joe used these experiences as the springboard to his giving back mission. In episode two, we're going to talk about how Joe and his partner, Trevor Maxwell, the host of the Man Up to Cancer podcast, which is a great show, how these two guys got together and formed a Facebook group, Man Up to Cancer, The Howling Place. This is just one of Joe's giving back missions in his life. So keep your eye on our Facebook page, Our Cancer Journey podcast is our Facebook page, or Our Cancer Journey, that's O-U-R CancerJourney.com, our website and we'll let you know when that next show drops. Well, you've probably noticed that we go deeper here on this podcast. We go beyond the story that many cancer shows and media tell. We do this because we believe that in these stories, in the insights from doctors or information from researchers, there are valuable insights and takeaways that we can use. And we know that deep inside, we have the strength, We have the wisdom and we have the power to positively influence our lives because this is our cancer journey. This episode of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced
1: by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.